Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Daniel Grioli and I'm the Market Fox columnist for i3 Insights. One of our aims for the i3 Insights podcast is to chat with a wide variety of guests drawn from different parts of investment and finance. We encourage our listeners to check out previous episodes of the i3 Insights podcast where we consider all sorts of topics including asset allocation, emerging markets investing, after-tax investing and qualitative investing. You can also follow us on Twitter at i3invest and at market underscore fox. Today I'm joined with Mike Cantara. Mike's a Senior Managing Director with MFS in Boston. He holds several roles within MFS. Most notably, he serves as the co-chair of the MFS Sustainability Group. We're going to talk today about all things ESG, that's environmental, social, and governance investing. But first, we're going to find out a little bit about Mike and how he came to work with MFS on ESG. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Mike to the podcast. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Mike. How did you get started in the industry? Um, well, I, as I mentioned before, I'm based in our Boston office and um, am local to uh, or a Boston native, I guess you could say, a New Englander, and came into uh, the business almost 30 years ago and uh, initially at Fidelity, where I spent uh, about 10 years. In the last 18 plus years, I've spent at MFS in a variety of roles on the investment side and then more recently on the distribution side. And much of that time has been uh, with a focus around sustainability. Okay. So... Tell us about your first job at Fidelity. Where did you start out? Um, I actually started in um, what was then known as the Fidelity Management Trust Company. So this was the precursor to the institutional business and a focus there on uh, non-U.S. portfolios. So I, I started as a portfolio analyst working on EFA strategies, uh, and then that eventually grow, grew into uh, taking on responsibilities for some uh, or getting involved in our global equity strategies at MFS. So I'm thinking back 30 years ago, 
non-U.S. investing would have been quite novel, I'm guessing. It was. And I, I remember the early days of, um, you know, a lot of work proving the case of the home country bias and the benefits of diversification. And, of course, at the time, there were um, lots of capital restrictions uh, keeping money at home in, in many uh, countries around the world. So uh, we certainly have evolved from there, where now it seems to be almost a seamless uh, integration of, uh, of everything global, both on the fixed income side as well as on the equity side. So things do change. Did you always want to get into the investment business? Um, I think it came at an early stage where I was uh, had always gravitated more in the math direction, uh, had an interest uh, in investing, and then uh, I think it kind of was uh, crystallized um, for me at an early age um, with perhaps an, an interesting or relevant story, and that is um, I grew up, as I said, in New England, uh, in Maine specifically, which is about a two-hour drive north of, of Boston, um, and uh, went to a Catholic school as a young boy and came home one day and told my mother that uh, I, I was thinking about the priesthood. Um, and she was very intrigued by all of that and asked me a bit more about my rationale. And the rationale was the priest in our parish happened to drive a Mercedes, which in the early 70s in rural Maine uh, stood out quite a bit. And uh, I then came to find out that it wasn't actually his Mercedes um, and decided that I was going to probably change my profession, not so much uh, to, uh, to that sort of calling, but thinking about um, where can I go from an investment standpoint. So that was certainly an early experience that got me set down that path, much to the disappointment of my mother and grandmother, I might say. <laughs> it's, it's quite a different vocation, isn't it, I guess? It, it is. Into the priesthood. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah, there, there are probably many differences, but uh, you know, I guess you could find some similarities if we looked hard enough. Interesting. So Back in the early days, who were some of the important mentors and influences that helped you along the way? I think, you know, influences and mentors are, are different categories, but certainly well-known investors, Peter Lynch, you know, going to Fidelity couldn't help but uh, really follow what he was doing. I never worked with him directly, so an influencer. Uh, mentors, I was fortunate, I think, to have a few um, over the years at Fidelity, a gentleman by the name of Bill Fink, uh, who managed the international portfolios, was uh, really instrumental for me at a very young age, kind of understanding the differences between uh, cultural differences between markets and in the makeup of different markets around the world, which was really fascinating uh, to me thinking about it, you know, for so long just from the U.S. perspective. Uh, and then, of course, at, at MFS, um, again, fortunate to have a number of mentors. One of the first people I met at MFS was a woman by the name of Joan Batchelder, who um, headed up our fixed income team at the time, and I interviewed her when I came to MFS, and, and she was a, a, a great mentor at the time. Um, and then on the investment side, uh, working very closely over the years with um, Dave Antonelli, who's vice chairman of MFS, uh, Dave Mannheim, who's a previous uh, portfolio manager at MFS, I, I think were some of the real key influencers and, and more importantly, in this case, mentors for me as I was uh, evolving through my career. You've moved through Fidelity. You're now at MFS. Yeah. How did you end up at MFS? 
Um, it was, you know, it's one of the uh, chance encounter where, um, believe it or not, ran into uh, an old colleague at, um, at a playground with my son, who was uh, very young at the time, uh, two or three years old, and um, just got talking about career developments. And she um, put me in touch with a few people at MFS, which was a great opportunity, really, to, um, to, uh, to learn more about what was going on at MFS at the time. And the timing was uh, terrific because I did end up spending a lot of time uh, at MFS on the global equity uh, strategy. So that got me uh, to Australia quite often in the uh, early 2000s and and have been coming back ever since. Very good. So tell us a little bit about the investment approach that MFS uses, just just for our listeners to have a bit of background about. Well, I I think in in a nutshell, you know, when we think about what is it that we're doing at MFS and why why would clients hire us, we we truly do believe that it is um, our responsibility to allocate uh, our clients' capital over the long term to enable them in a sustainable way to really meet their long-term outcomes. So there's a lot in there, but really just a common sense approach of having the discipline to be a long-term investor and focusing on what we think and and what our clients tell us really matters to them. And that is the end result or the outcome, which um, often uh, times requires a very long-term investment horizon. So as part of this long-term investment horizon, was sustainability always a part of the investment process or when did that start to become more explicit in the investment process? It, it's, it's an ongoing debate within MFS because we have this discussion oftentimes um, where this is not new uh, when we talk about ESG or sustainable investing. Um, the labels are new. Um, the amount of data that's available is different or new. Um, but understanding um, what a management team's strategy is for running their business over the long term and then what are the material elements that can affect that has been part of what we've we've always done so um, you you referenced earlier my role as as co-chair of our sustainability group uh, and that dates back to 2009 uh, where we started with what was called then our responsible investing committee um, which was our first real uh, look at um, signing on to the UNPRI the principles for responsible Responsible investment, and uh, we were able to get comfortable in doing that in 2009, 2010, uh, because it's so consistent with what we have always seen as our mandate, and that is uh, to really uh, look at uh, the the um, elements that will have a material impact on the company's valuation uh, and and future prospects over the long term. It might be helpful for our listeners if you can provide a bit of background about what is involved in signing up for the UNPRI and perhaps tell us a little bit about MFS's experiences since becoming a signatory. Yeah, one of the, we think the big benefit of the PRI is that um, there's a lot of organization and a lot of the work being done now is really to develop uh, frameworks and evidence. And so frameworks uh, which help not only asset owners but investment managers um, really understand um, how to establish the right investment policies, procedures, etc. to do that. And then on the evidence side, what we're finding, and we've had uh, several of our ESG um, uh, analysts and opportunities to get involved in collaborating on various projects from um, uh, tax avoidance uh, from a couple of years back 
to uh, more recently a lot of focus on income inequality and, and more social issues. So one of the big benefits we think is is uh, to allow uh, us to collaborate with other industry participants uh, in order to uh, try and solve some of these uh, these bigger problems. So it's been a relationship that has worked out really well. In fact, we are uh, going to be the lead sponsor of the PRI in-person event that's happening in San Francisco in September. So I uh, hope to see a lot of your listeners there. Very good. So in terms of uh, your clients, how have you seen their ESG journey progress over the last 10 years or so? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, is as we observe sort of a, a, on a global basis, uh, we, we tend to think about uh, three categories that we could kind of group investors into. In the first, uh, the skeptics or the followers. So these are ones that still need a little more convincing. Um, and then uh, we would say the believers. So there's evidence there and it, it's more a matter of uh, figuring out what to do next or how to move the process along. Um, and then there's a category that I would call leaders, which are really at the cutting edge of a lot of um, the, uh, the newer elements, I would say, of um, of ESG investing, and a lot of times that means impact investing or having direct investment. So um, that is still a relatively small cohort, um, but I think is uh, particularly within uh, the institutional space um, led by many of the Nordic countries, uh, certainly led uh, by Australia, New Zealand with some of the superannuation funds uh, there, and, and I would say Canada in, uh, is another area. The, uh, the notable um, absent uh, from the list is the U.S., um, and although there are some leaders in the U.S., uh, I think, as a, um, as a region, uh, as a country, still further behind other parts of the world. So if you had to put the U.S. in, in one of those three buckets, the skeptics, the believers but unsure of how to progress, or the leaders, from your comments, I'm guessing they're not in the leaders. So would you put them in the average U.S. investment uh, group into the skeptical bucket or the not sure how to progress bucket. Um, I think more in the in the believers and in, in trying to figure out what to do now. I think there's too many powerful uh, trends um, that are happening um, to to really deny that. And, and by that, I mean, um, you know, for a while, there was a lot of back and forth and debate about the academic research. But when we look at it now, 90% of the academic studies uh, do verify that there's at least uh, some positive correlation to financial performance for companies that pay attention to material factors. And I think that's an important distinction. Maybe we can come back to. Um, but also, uh, really thinking about um, how uh, that gets uh, implemented. Um, the skeptic part of this, I think, is is still there. And, and a lot of that, um, I think, can be seen through the lens of the current administration in the U.S., um, where, you know, pulling out of the Paris Accord, rolling back a lot of things that uh, are related to uh, regulation. Again, not ESG specific, but just the general trend. But Despite that, what we're seeing from the industry is companies are still signing up for uh, those scenario targets and, comp and, and, and investment managers and asset owners alike are still pursuing this path. So to me, that's encouraging because it, it does uh, imply, at least as an industry, that we're not going to wait for regulation to tell us what we should be doing. We're figuring that out. Uh, and so that's why I think you're starting to see more uh, move squarely into that believers camp from the U.S. side. Okay. So you've told us a little bit about the journey at MFS and what's happening on the client side of things. Yeah. How about with companies themselves? What changes have you seen with companies over the last 
10, 15 years on the ESG front? Yeah, well, it, certainly uh, there's been no shortage of, of uh, glossy brochures on lots of cl- uh, uh, corporate websites that, that talk about what the each of these corporations are doing uh, from a sustainability standpoint. Uh, but I think, you know, more importantly, it's ending up in our engagements with uh, the executive teams um, and boards when we're engaging uh, at that level. Um, there, There's, uh, I, I would say, more of a... Um, a requirement of transparency and, and evidence. And so um, a lot of the, uh, uh, some of the marketing slogans that have been used regarding sustainability just don't cut it when we're talking about specifics um, with companies. So we're seeing uh, in some cases, CEOs or CIOs um, really wrestling with what's the right data elements. And I think that's at the heart of um uh, what the industry needs to solve right now. We've seen a tremendous amount of new data sources come out on whether it's climate or environmental risk or different measures of uh, governance or social issues, worker safety, uh, voluntary turnover. All of these metrics are are becoming more uh, commonplace, um, but we need a, a framework to be able to compare apples to apples. And I think that's um, uh, kind of the state of where we are right now. There's a lot of great data, but how do we use all that so that we, at the end of the day, still have some comparison? So company managements are asking the industry for guidance on that. Um, And there's a lot of work being done by SASB in the U.S. Organizations like uh, the the PRI are doing a lot of work to try and bring some of those frameworks together, which I think will be additive, uh, certainly, into the overall discussion. Do you think we'll ever reach a point where we have a a common set of ESG reporting rules similar to what we do with accounting where you have GAP or IFRS. Do you think that's on the cards? And if so, how far away is something like that? Um, I do think that's, uh, you know, that's where we're heading. Um, and I think we, we need to, I would say, be a little bit cautious on that front. Um, but when you, when I say SASB, that's the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, modeled very much after FASB in the U.S. Um, going back to the early 70s. And so that is um, a framework on a sector-by-sector basis where there's uh, work being done to really identify what is material for that industry. And I think that is the key phrase that we keep coming back to. Simple example would be in the transportation sector, whether it's um, you know rail line or trucking. Some of the things that stand out as being very material, obviously, are um, greenhouse gas emissions as well as worker safety. Um, when we look at banking, for instance, the material factors are going to be quite different. Those may still exist. Um, greenhouse gas emissions may be interesting to look at, but it may not be as material. But things like um, ethics practices um, or overall business practices would certainly come to the fore and be much more material. So um, I always come back to this, but there was a Harvard study uh, or a a paper that came out of Harvard Business School in 2015 um, really talking about this um, corporate materiality uh, or the materiality, the first evidence of, of the distinction that that makes. And through that, they were not only able to illustrate that companies that pay attention to material issues within their industry um, outperform their peers, but companies that pay attention to immaterial issues detract value over time. 
very common sense outcome from my perspective, but I think it was the first time that I've seen at least uh, real evidence um, to show that uh, companies should not try to be everything to everyone. It has to be about what is most material to that business. Uh, and if we focus on that and continuously focus on that, uh, then I think you know we have a better chance of really identifying um, the right investment factors over the long term. I think that's a really interesting point about the the importance of focusing on the right things. Yeah. So we've we've talked about a few different constituencies here. We've talked about asset managers. We've talked about institutional investors. We've talked about companies. One group we haven't mentioned, which is the end investor. Yeah. So what's happening with the end investor, the ultimate client in terms of ESG? Yeah, um, I think it, it's it's becoming a more important factor, and you can just look at sort of the demographic trends um, as you know one bit of evidence that that reinforces that. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, a lot of discussion and talk around millennials, but uh, we know over the next fifteen years, millennials going to be three quarters of the global workforce. Um, these issues are important to them, not only as employees but also as investors. Um, a lot of the survey work that we've seen also show that that women are much more interested in many of these issues. And so I think we, we see both of those um, as, as obviously important um, end users or constituents um, of investment services. And so that is uh, one uh, element that we're, we're seeing come through more and more uh, demanding these types of issues. Um, that is part A to the problem. Part B is how do you solve it, which is, um, you know, oftentimes uh, I think the industry overall is really good at creating product. Um, and so the number of products out there funds um, vastly exceeds the number of, uh, of stocks available globally. We know that. Um, and I do worry a little bit that that um, that that will be the industry's solution here is to try and create product for everything. Um, our view is, is quite different. Uh, we don't think product's bad necessarily, but it doesn't answer the whole question. Integrating these practices into an investment process, uh, we think, is a much more durable way to do that. So convincing that millennial uh, that a portfolio um, run by a skilled manager that's focused on engaging with companies uh, can meet their needs. Um, but oftentimes we, we do uh, need to think about what does that product look like and how do we develop a product that meets the various um, values, I guess, of the, those underlying uh, investors or retirees. And, um, you know, I might be concerned about sugar, you might be concerned about tobacco. So how do we uh, really uh, have a, a process that focuses on product? Through integration, um, we can go through a process that allows us to match um, what we're finding in the market place to uh, those investors' actual needs. Do you think technology could play a role in that uh, it might allow the end client to opt in or opt out of certain things, basically vote their conscience, so to speak? Do you think we could see a day when we could have the technology that would allow people to do that? Uh, yeah, I guess that could take on a couple of different forms, but you know, the, the, the clear trend throughout 
all of uh, uh, any industry is that technology is driving uh, a lot more efficiency in the dissemination of information. So certainly um, having a more transparency, better access to that information would give uh, uh, end users, the clients, uh, ability to to maybe have a say in real time or close to real time in, in those instances. You mentioned in your earlier response the importance of integrating ESG into an investment process and making sure that the client understands that. That's probably a good segue into talking about how MFS integrates ESG into its investment process. Perhaps you could take us through uh, how that works and, and maybe offer us an example or two. To sure. So uh, my, my starting point here is um, uh, the fundamental law of active management. Um, and so this comes from Grinald and Kahn. Uh, but basically uh, looking at uh, the alpha potential equals uh, skill times the opportunity set. That's my English translation of of, uh, of the fundamental law of uh, active management. And so integration is a process that enables us to not start off with a limited opportunity set. And therefore, we don't believe that we're limiting the alpha potential that we can provide as a result of that. Um, so as a skilled manager, we would think of ourselves as certainly a skilled manager having a, a very deep global research team um, really charged with identifying or sifting through that opportunity set um, to screen out not up front but through our analysis process of companies that either meet our long-term criteria or don't. Um, and so it is very much in that um, sense of integrating this into what are the long-term drivers of this business, how much visibility do we think we have into those drivers, whether they fall under an E, S, or G category or not, um, is is kind of less relevant in many instances as, as thinking about what is the long-term valuation. One way maybe to, to put that in perspective, or at least how I think about it, um, using the U.S. As, as an example, the S&P 500, um, currently the, the overall um, uh, market value of intangible assets to tangible assets of the companies in, in the S&P 500 uh, is a ratio of about 84% to 16%, meaning 84% of the value of the S&P 500 is in intangible assets. That's brands, that's um, research and development, it's services, it's intellectual property. Um, compared to 1975, where those numbers were basically reversed, uh, that, you know, 80 plus percent would have been in physical assets. Um, uh, the market cap of the S&P 500 would have been attributed to, to more to physical assets. So I think that trend to more intangible assets is very consistent with how we have to think about some of these ESG issues. They're long term, they're meaningful. Um, you can't point to it necessarily on um, an income statement or a balance sheet in, in each instance, um, but there is a real need to understand how is that executive team, how is that board really managing all of the levers that they have to pull to run their business. And what we're finding, because you mentioned technology earlier in reporting, um, that we just have more visibility into some of these E, S, and G issues. So uh, as we think about it, talk to our analysts, talk to our portfolio teams, um, many of these things are not new, but we have more robust uh, data uh, to supplement that. And so that's really what we, when we think about integration, we're never 
uh, from a starting point saying we won't invest in this area unless it's client directed. We certainly have clients that have specific missions or specific areas that they want to address um, and uh, might ask us to screen out certain uh, sin stock restrictions or things of that nature, which again, mechanically is very easy to do. Um, and, uh, and so there's not a lot of value added in that process, in my view. Uh, we think the real value add comes through the integration and kind of making those hard decisions about um, where we want to allocate our clients' capital. So do you have a, a separate team of analysts that's looking at ESG issues or is the same analyst that's covering the stock are they also looking at that company for its scoring across ESG-related issues? Yeah, um, it's both. Um, and so we do have dedicated ESG analysts, both on the equity and the fixed income side. Um, and I, I would say that our overall integration is is really trying to marry a bottom-up view with a more, I'll say, top-down or thematic view. So our ESG team um, focuses on specific issues. I mentioned uh, uh, tax um, uh avoidance earlier, um, income inequality, um, water scarcity, some of these really big um, global issues are led by our ESG analyst. Um, and then they are working side by side with our fundamental analyst. So we only have one rating on a, you know, a buy, hold, sell rating system. Um, we don't have a separate ESG rating. Again, this is integrated and we only, uh, we only are looking for one signal. Do we want to own this company or not? And then uh, understand the thesis behind that. And what we're finding as we develop this more and more is that there's always two or three key elements to why we own that security. And more often than not, we're finding that E, S, or G um, is one of those elements. And so um, including it in that way uh, is how we think about it. Perhaps you could help our listeners with an example. You mentioned some some big themes that the, the top-down ESG analysts are looking at, such as tax, income inequality, and also water usage. So how does a, a big theme like, because we're all aware of those issues. Right. So, Let's take water, for example. Yep. In a lot of third world countries, water is a problem and a lot of companies use it irresponsibly. They damage the water supply. They, they hurt the local population. So we all know that. But how does that actually translate down into a, a stock call? Yeah. Um, it, again, it's, it's really trying to build the mosaic and using um, our, the work done from our ESG team and, and the analysts on the ground that are responsible for those companies. So, um, you know, I think a great example of that is uh, some work that we did um, looking um, at uh, Chinese beverage companies. And uh, in, in this particular case, uh, there was one beer manufacturer that was expanding uh, their bottling operation and, and manufacturing production, uh, but doing so in areas of extremely high water stress. Um, and so um, that was something that we looked at um, based on work uh, collaboration between our ESG analyst and the fundamental analyst on the ground. Uh, so the fundamental analyst was um, really able to identify where the min where this expansion was taking place, and our ESG analyst, um, by locating some very specific water scarcity maps, was able to overlay that on top of the, the company's expansion plans, um, which really highlighted the risk 
um, from our perspective. And so that prompted lots of questions with the management team and how they were going to handle the stakeholders in that case, as you rightly point out. Um, that's a very significant social issue if you're um, trying to expand in areas um, um, that have that level of scarcity. So as a result, that um, really affected the discount rate that we were using to value that company. Um, and in, in, in really an appreciation of the potential for uh, the risk uh, that they were going into or the, the potential for the, the risk of uh, failure of executing on that strategy because of some of these issues. So that's a tangible way where it, we're able to, um, uh, in this case, uh, use a higher discount rate, uh, which would lower the, the current valuation of that company, making it less attractive as an investment option. So we try to use those, um, in some cases, qualitative or subjective uh, assessment of how management in particular will handle certain issues and translate that into, uh, in this case, uh, a discounted cash flow um, uh, metric. Okay, so if I understand you correctly, uh, unless the clients ask you to specifically avoid certain types of companies, how you reflect ESG risks is via the discount rate? Um, not in all cases, but by, via the valuation. So in this case, it was the discount rate that was used in a, in a free ca in a discounted cash flow uh, valuation um, that was flexed. But in other cases, it might be a specific line item within our modeling. So um, you know, as as an integrated uh, research process, we're building all of our own earnings and valuation models, which won't be surprising to you. And so it can come in different forms. We don't use a DCF or discounted cash flow. Uh, calculation in every uh, industry. Um, so it will vary. So that's just one example of the way that that can show up. But the point is the same, which is somehow we have to reflect this in the actual valuation for this to be um, it, to be comparable or to, to really drive a decision um, on a particular security. So I'm going to ask you to take a stab at it at something, and I'm not going to hold you to the answer because it's a guess. Okay. But if you had to think across... MFS's global investment research coverage, if you had to pick a percentage, that's a guess, what percentage would you say are companies where ESG is, is really going to drive the result of whether or not you invest, whether it's via the discount rate or some other uh, factor in the valuation, as opposed to companies where ESG, for whatever reason, is not a big driver in what they do? Um, it's a very high percentage, I would say, um, and, and, not, and I don't want that to, to sound like or, or uh, imply that uh, we're focusing more on ESG issues. We're focusing on the same issues we always have, which is trying to understand what are the key drivers of companies. Uh, and as I said before, um, it may just be because of the labels that are being used and more conveniently now or more um, uh, more often now, but that is coming in uh, too. So it's, it's uh, yeah, I don't really have a, a precise guess, but I would say it's, it's the vast majority where um, worker safety issues are coming into play, um, water scarcity, income inequality, all the things that we've been talking about, it's really getting harder and harder to find a company that isn't going to be affected at some point by one of those things. Uh, we can call them ESG issues. You can call them something else as you like. Just don't ignore them. They're going to have an impact um, on the valuation of those companies. Okay. So I think it's fair to say it touches most organizations in some way. In some way. And I think, um, you know, from the corporate perspective, at least a lot of the 
dialogue that has come out from CEOs or CFOs in the last number of years uh, and, and within the ESG community overall I think has been very focused on the E part of it. Uh, we know about the G and that certainly has been going on for some time. I think the uh, the social element is certainly getting a lot more attention now and I think that's over the last 12 or 18 months uh, something that's uh, continuing uh, to we're continuing to hear more and more from CEOs about either their talent management and certainly when you look in the technology space and areas like that uh, talent is ki- critical uh, to that so uh, companies are paying a lot more attention to uh, the S I don't think they present it that way necessarily but when you dig through it that's really the element that we're talking about here Okay. So you mentioned earlier in the conversation that there's this this group of skeptics Mm. that still aren't really on board with ESG. I'm now going to play the part of one of those skeptics. Okay. I'm going to ask you some devil's advocate questions. And I'm very interested to hear how you would respond to some of these skeptical questions. Let me stress, I'm playing the part of a devil's advocate. These are not my personal ESG beliefs, but a lot of people out there probably have these questions. So our first ESG skeptic question, is ESG just virtue signaling? I don't think so. I, I don't I don't view it that way. Uh, I think it can be viewed that way, but uh, without being cliche, I think we we do need to focus on valuation, not values. Our fiduciary responsibility is to help clients achieve their investment outcomes over the long term. Um, and I think what we're saying here is that saving for retirement and saving the environment are not in conflict. Um, but our responsibility is uh, to the, the former uh, first, uh, and that is to help um, investors uh, meet their long-term uh, goals. So that has to take priority over uh, any um, position of virtues or values from our standpoint, that's certainly not what we're attempting to do. Okay. I think you sailed past that one very well. All right. Next skeptical question. What's the big deal? Shouldn't every fund manager already be doing this? Aren't they already being paid to manage risk and isn't ESG just another risk? Yes. So everybody should be asking their manager exactly what they're doing and looking for the evidence of this. Um, The one caveat I would make, though, is this is not just about risk. I think risk is a key element here. uh, But what we're talking about also uh, are opportunities, revenue generating opportunities, new businesses, uh, new business lines. um, And uh, a lot of our portfolio has some element to um, helping uh, clients uh, of these companies save money. And so it's energy efficiency, et cetera. So there is an opportunity side of this. So I, I think we need to balance both um, the risk management as well as an understanding or an appreciation of uh, where this can actually add value to a portfolio as well. I'm going to stop playing skeptic for a second. I'm really pleased to hear you say that because that's one thing I think is often lacking in the ESG debate is that we talk about the bad actors, the bad companies, the things that are going wrong. And we never explore or we we rarely explore the potential to perhaps buy companies that are fixer-uppers. ESG may not be at a standard where it is where it should be, but there's a plan to improve it. And through engagement, we can help the company or reap the benefits of that company's improvement. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm putting you on the spot with this question, but can you perhaps give us an example of that positive side 
of ESG engagement? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, just to pick up first on, on your point, because I do think this is really how uh, what's important to, to us overall, and that is um, that it isn't just about the risk. There are the opportunities here. We need to be able to balance uh, both of those elements as, as we do that. There are many examples, as I was um, you know talking about before, but one thing that is important is that we're engaging with these companies to understand, um, is this an opportunity? Is this a risk? Are you doing this intentionally? What are your long-term plans to manage uh, each of these, uh, these elements? And I think when you have a, a negative screen um, or excluding whole categories of companies, you lose any opportunity to affect positive change. And so uh, that is, again, a role that we see as, um, as an active manager engaging with companies, not only on proxy issues, but on fundamental issues to their business. And, and more and more often, we're finding that those are ES or G related. So keep coming back to that theme. But, um, you know, in, in chemical space, um, we think about um, certain names that, that we've owned over time. There's a uh, you know, painting and coat uh, coatings companies that are really helping uh, drive energy efficiency for uh, the shipping industry. So, you know, what you use uh, from Axon Nobel to paint the bottom of, a, of the uh, the shipping liners um, can improve efficiency. Those are the types of things that often uh, uh, don't go. Um, don't get a lot of publicity, uh, but I think those are uh, minor er or, or uh, smaller areas that uh, that we can certainly find some good opportunities. I'll switch back to being a skeptic again now. So academic research and empirical results often show that SIN stocks outperform. Mm. So I'm thinking of the, uh, the update in the Credit Suisse Global Financial Yearbook. Uh, I think it had tobacco stocks going back over 100 years at a 20% plus annualized return. So given that some of these SIN stocks perform quite well, and, and similar things are true of alcohol stocks and weapons manufacturers as well, why should investors focus on sustainability? Um, well, I think even if you're talking about these companies, when, when I say sustainability, I'm talking about the sustainability of that business or business model over the long term. And then what are the, again, starting with the investment um, case first and foremost, uh, not the environmental case or social case or, or, or governance case. And I think those are brought into the equation after having an understanding of what is the investment thesis, what is the investment case to be made. And so uh, in those areas that, you know, as you um, refer to sin stocks, um, yes, they have been, um, you know, strong performing parts of the market. To me, that's um, that's not the entire point, which is um, what are we trying to accomplish within the portfolio? And so it's perfectly legitimate in my, in, in, in my view, at least, uh, to build a portfolio where an organization might not want to include those names. Um, we have to have a discussion about that and recognize the realities um, that that could impact um, relative returns, but um, it is manageable. There are substitutes in some cases um, within consumer staples or other things that we could uh, invest in that, that um, get some industry exposure or some other trend that may be um, happening uh, that doesn't uh, perhaps include uh, tobacco or alcohol or firearms or something along those lines. I think that's a really good point. And if I think of my own personal experience, uh, I had a grandfather who died from lung cancer when I was not even two years old, so I never really got to know him. So 
I personally would never invest in a tobacco stock because I've experienced firsthand uh, the effects, the negative effects. But I'm also very well aware, as, as you just mentioned, that I'm giving up returns doing that. I'm yep. comfortable making that call. And that's something that I've noticed is sometimes a bit missing in the ESG discussion because everybody talks about um, the importance of, of being a fiduciary and having values and sustainability. They don't always talk about the point that sometimes those values may cost you return, but that's okay. Yeah. And there was a great piece of research that uh, Cliff Asnes put out from AQR on his blog, uh, probably about a year or so ago, called Virtue is Its Own Reward. I'm interested to, to hear your thoughts on this. Do you think uh, the providers of ESG investment strategies should be talking with their clients more about this issue in terms of, well, having your values is a, a good and appropriate thing to do but you may not be able to have your cake and eat it too in terms of returns. Yeah. Well, I think that it's very difficult within, you know, the the kind of extended principal agent chain that happens within our industry. So you asked earlier about the end pensioner that we're actually here serving, um, but there are a lot of intermediaries in the way, whether that's at the, uh, the corporate level, the investment manager, uh, and then extending that out to the companies that we're investing in. So actually implementing Implementing that across a diverse set of pensioners is quite difficult, as we, we've uh, referred to a couple of times, uh, in order to capture each of those uh, elements. So I think with um, the integration approach, it really is um, making sure that there's good alignment between the asset owner and the asset manager um, on what are the values that probably will be prioritized, if we can say it that way, within this strategy that reflects uh, the beliefs or mission of, of the asset owner organization. Uh, and again, those are the types of dialogues that we want to be having with, with our clients and investors uh, because, again, we're not going to try to impose the MSFS view or my personal view view um, on investors, particularly um, uh, around the world, uh, where you have you know, many uh, different, very strong views from one region to the other. One of the frustrations that I've had at times as a capital allocator is that uh, a lot of the ESG research that I see seems to confuse uh, several other factors together with ESG and then claim a result. I'll give you an example of what I mean. You'll get a lot of promoters of carbon neutral strategies, for example, and I'll talk about well, we've created this index and we've reduced the carbon exposure of the index by X amount, but they haven't adjusted the index for sector or country risks because obviously if you're eliminating uh, companies that are heavy carbon producers, you're largely eliminating capital intensive industrial companies and we know over the last 10 or 20 years those companies have largely underperformed and as you said earlier when you talked about the the composition of the S&P 500 you can see that reflected in the composition of the S&P 500 that's yeah. the businesses that have uh, intellectual capital rather than physical capital that now dominate so I kind of wonder and it's always been very difficult as an allocator when looking at these strategies to actually tease out well, how much of this is actually improvement due to ESG 
and how much of it is due to sector or country or some other factor that's getting mixed in. Yeah. Is there any tips or suggestions you can give allocators like me when looking at ESG strategies to sort of figure that out? Well, I, I think that, you know, a lot of these are the same thing, just using different language. And so parsing through that is is what what has gotten, um, in some cases, more difficult. Um, and, and I think there's kind of the irony, uh, and this is not new, but we've seen such a proliferation of data providers or data sources or rating agency on ESG. Uh, clearly, this is, um, you know, an area where lots of people are focused uh, on various commercial opportunities. Um, and so I think we need to be a little bit careful about not uh, over-engineering uh, many of these processes. And that's why I like the, you know, as you just referenced, the, the reference to intangibles. This is something that we've been dealing with for a long time within the investment space. Um, and so we have to uh, really be disciplined about which parameters are actually affecting uh, the long-term valuation. And I think separating that valuation um, from, again, the values or virtues uh, is is an important step in this process. So um, there are some you know great data providers out there, lots of rating agencies. Um, we try to supplement sort of an overall view and a, another perspective or that third-party view with uh, very specific data sets when we have an issue like looking at water scarcity or um, the carbon disclosure project. CDP has a lot of great data sets on uh, various uh, climate issues that we can incorporate into our uh, primary research as well. So I think it's finding that combination of um, you know, maintaining the discipline of your investment style, but finding the right um, ESG data sources to really supplement that. It's interesting to hear you bring up the uh, the topic of the research providers and their role in this process. I'd like to tell you a little story, a personal experience from the recent past, an experience in a portfolio that I was uh, responsible for recently. And I'd like to get your thoughts on what I think is the moral of the story, and that is where do you draw the line with some of these issues? Because it can be quite unclear. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you the story and then perhaps you can uh, answer with your thoughts on where you can draw the line on some of these things. We had a stock in the portfolio and that stock was Boeing. And Boeing is an interesting stock because depending on how some of the research providers look at it, it can be screened out for cluster munitions or not. So when we looked at it a little further, we found that Boeing's revenues, um, most of those revenues come from the production of airliners. There's a very small portion. At the time, I think it was around about 5% that came from the production of weapons. And one of the weapons that Boeing produces is a fighter jet. Now that fighter jet is capable of deploying cluster munitions, but Boeing doesn't actually make cluster munitions. So what we found was depending on the research provider, and even within the same provider, depending on how strict you wanted the criteria to be, uh, I'm thinking of one provider that had four categories of strictness, and Boeing was okay for the first three, but not for the fourth. Depending on that, uh, Boeing was either screened out or maintained. And it was an interesting case because a lot of fund managers from an investment perspective were attracted to Boeing because 
there's very strong recurrent earnings because aeroplanes need to be maintained for 20 to 30 years and so yep. that means parts need to be bought and it's a safety issue. So they were attracted to it from an investment perspective but there were these ESG concerns about whether or not it was involved in cluster munitions and uh, as we saw last year Boeing was one of the best performers on the Dow, a very strong performance. So I'm not asking you to talk so much about Boeing as a company but just to illustrate this idea of where should we draw the line because sometimes it's quite hard to tell what is or isn't acceptable. Right. Yeah, and I think what you're highlighting is that there is a variety of ESG issues with any company um, or at least a variety of ESG considerations. And so uh, on the one end, uh, there may be concern about cluster munitions. On the other end, um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, good work being done on energy efficiency um, with, with a company like Boeing as well. So without getting into the specifics of, of, of every company, I think that's that is really the question that Quite honestly, I, I don't think we make on our own that we have to do that in conjunction or in alignment with um, the investors that we are representing um, through that portfolio or through those investments. And so uh, and I don't mean to, to take the easy way out on a question like that, but I do think that there isn't a single strategy or one size fits all. That's that's the point, um, which is why I think uh, integration is harder. Uh, it takes more energy, effort, resources, time, um, but I think it's a more durable process and one that where you can get at these things and have a dialogue uh, with between investment manager and asset owner on what is it that we're, we're really trying to do. And that's, I think, one of the pitfalls of the screens is that you never, if you screen it out, you never get the opportunity to engage or change behavior. And uh, that's something that I think, you know, I would want to hold on to as long as possible uh, in order to not limit that opportunity set. I think that's a very good point. And you mentioned earlier uh, the importance of frameworks. And I think a case like Boeing really highlights why frameworks are important because mm -hmm. a lot of these ESG considerations have secondary you know, knock-on effects. And you really need a framework to be able to deal with that and to deal with it consistently. Yes. Yes. And I think that's that is the you know the the value of, of frameworks. It doesn't give you the precise answer each time, but it gives you uh, the the general um, the general answer and allows us to, to really uh, communicate or, or triangulate around specific issues. We were chatting before the podcast about Tesla. Yeah. As an interesting example of another company that has various ESG factors at play. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what you see in Tesla from an ESG perspective. Well, I, I think it's an interesting example because it's often held out there as, you know, the uh, almost the poster child of, of ESG with electric vehicles. And, and I, I think they're there, this is again coming back to the S part of this. Um, so the, the the labor force and the production uh, concerns um, and safety concerns. And so um, this is one where certainly the rating the ESG rating agencies um, had their highest rating on Tesla for some time. That came down earlier this year. Um, but our fixed income analyst actually uh, did a lot of the work uh, around this uh, when they were coming out with their uh, issuance in, in two. 
2017, uh, and that's one that we we passed on because of concerns um, around uh, a very aggressive pro production schedule. Uh, discussions with uh, some of the uh, the labor force did highlight for us that there were uh, concerns about safety and, and and so on. So I think that's to me not again you know to to uh, say that Tesla isn't ever going to be a good investment or something that we'd be in, in, interested in, um, but uh, you have to do the work. You have to understand what's behind it. And I think um, there is, again, as I said before, a lot of window dressing on, on some of these issues. And I think we have to be very, um, you know, we're paid as analysts or portfolio managers to be skeptical to a degree. And I think we need to, uh, to ask the questions, but really verify what is going on uh, and not, uh, not fall for the story but really look for the evidence. So if I can summarize your response to my skeptical questions, it's really this. There's no replacement for doing the work. There's no easy answers because there's obviously a lot of issues at play and sometimes the same company can have different conflicting issues, uh, which is why investors really need a, a framework about how they're going to integrate this into their portfolio. Uh, that's right. And I, I think, um, but, you know, there there is good news in that, that, uh, as I said earlier, I think, um, you know, the evidence does show that a well-structured investment program, uh, you know, disciplined portfolio management, I do believe that we can accomplish or make progress on both of these goals, help people save for retirement, but also, um, you know, have an environment that uh, uh, that is uh, certainly comfortable to live in, both from a financial standpoint, but from an environmental, social, as well as, um, you know, an overall governance or framework perspective. So, You mentioned some of these academic studies. Have any of them been able to put a a number on the size of the the impact that ESG investing can have. Uh, I you know I see a different number almost in each one. So some of it depends on how you describe it, but I, the number is is uh, I would say large and growing. Um, but you know that that's uh, not much of a frame of reference. But I do think that uh, if you think about impact investing, which is directly uh, not in the secondary markets, but investing directly into companies, um, that's having a um, an impact. Uh, sorry for the pun, uh, but also I think the uh, the tremendous amount of focus that we see across all investment managers, and uh, certainly within the public equity space, um, there is uh, tremendous opportunity to really make sure that we're tying these things together, not at the exclusion of one versus the other, but really uh, tying these factors along with good uh, investment practices that we've uh, you know we've known for some time. Just wrapping up, a couple of final questions. One final question on ESG, and then we'll move on to a couple of questions about you and investing more broadly. Where do you think the future of ESG investing lies? Um, well, I, you know, I, I do think that this is just now becoming. Uh, and will become more mainstream. Uh, you know, I think what we try to do is is talk about our investment process. And within that investment process, uh, there's research, and that research includes financial and non-financial factors. And the point I'm making is that we don't talk about our investment process and then talk about ESG. Uh, and I think that's still too much 
of how the dialogue goes in, in the environment today. So I think with, um, you know, better access to information about various ESG issues, more transparency, um, that that will be ingrained into the investment process. And, and I think that distinction is one that's necessary today, but won't be necessary in the future. Further integration is on the cards, I guess. I believe so. This is a question I love to ask experienced investors such as yourself, somebody who's been in the business as long as you have. What lessons did you have to learn the hard way in your career? Mm. Um, for me, it really is around um, having an understanding from multiple perspectives. I think that's what I have tried to do uh, both um, in you know any involvement I've had in the investment process. More recently, I've been involved more in, in the management side of things. Um, and uh, it really is about empathy and understanding the perspective of somebody else. And a lot of times, I guess, that was ingrained in me early on. Um, you know, and a lot of this comes out from just doing different projects in big organizations uh, where you have um, accountability, but not necessarily authority. And so how do you kind of build relationships and, and go through that negotiation? So that's that's a skill I think that uh, we all need in a very dynamic world um, and having a little bit of empathy and sitting, you know, trying to full, truly understand the problem that a client is trying to solve or uh, another investor is trying to solve rather than just what I'm trying to, to problem solve for, I think is, is something that uh, became necessarily at a, a very early stage and, and uh, has stuck with me. I think that's a very, very good lesson. And I think we could all do with a bit more empathy at the moment. Yeah. So can you give our listeners three tips to improve their investment decision making? Well, you won't be, probably be surprised at this point to hear me um, somewhat repetitive on, on this point. But I, I do think that uh, first and foremost, it is um, having a long term perspective, um, you know, as uh, uh, it, savers as investors, um, we we need to really consider what is the the purpose of that money I'm saving. If it's for retirement, then that's has a a very long shelf life, and so we need to have that long term perspective. And, and I make that distinction because I think there is a lot of noise in the marketplace. There's a lot of noise within ESG with all the different data providers coming in. So uh, sticking to the long term, I think, is point number one. Following on to that, I would say is is a discipline. Uh, write down why you own the security, um, and refer back to it often uh, because it will change or the circumstances of the information in the marketplace will change and it's a good reminder of you know why you set out in that direction uh, in the first place so I think that's um, uh, important the last thing I guess I would say is is uh, I think it's important for investors to have what I would call countercyclical courage uh, so don't follow the herd um, and I think that's uh, true when you're screening out names or thinking about uh, what's going on in the marketplace. It kind of comes back to this, got to do the work, got to have independent thought, um, need a, a network of, of trusted partners that you can bounce ideas off of. Uh, and if you do that, I think you can have some countercyclical courage, which is really where we can take advantage of some of the, the short-term noise in the marketplace. Okay. I think that's all very good advice. Long-termism, discipline, and courage when required. Right. Uh, I think we could all benefit by implementing that advice. So where can listeners find out more about ESG investing and more about MFS's approach to ESG investing? 
Uh, our website, mfs.com forward slash sustainability, has uh, everything that we're doing at the moment and uh, a lot of our historical reports from a proxy standpoint. So uh, certainly um, that would be one, one stop that we think would be worth making. Very good. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us today and travel safely back to the US. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.